Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm Marshall Poe, the editor-in-chief of the network, and each week we scour the internet looking for interesting books, or as we'll find out, artifacts that are sort of like books but aren't quite books, and we interview the authors of those things. I don't know what to call them anymore. And this week I'm very happy to say we have my colleague Colin Gordon on the show, and we'll be discussing his book-like internet object called Growing Apart, A Political History of American Inequality. Now, in its own right, this is a terrific book, but it also is incredibly innovative in the sense of taking advantage, and I think full advantage, of everything the internet has to offer for those of us that create and disseminate ideas. I guess in 1995, we would call this a website, but it's not really a a website because it's too interactive for that. It it is a, a graphic presentation with a lot of text. You can move through it very easily. You don't have to stick in one place. It is nonlinear, but its organization is incredibly clear. It is full of wonderful graphics, including video, I should say. And uh, all in all, it just is an extraordinary thing to investigate. So I'm going to talk to Colin a little bit about how the book was made because it is so innovative. But first, let me say, Colin, thank you very much for being on the show. It's a pleasure. All right. Could you begin the interview by telling us a little bit about yourself? I'm a professor of history at the University of Iowa. I've been here about 18 years. Uh, I previously taught at the University of British Columbia. My uh, field is... Uh, broadly speaking, sort of modern American public policy and political economy. Um, I've written previous books on the New Deal, on healthcare, and on urban policy. And uh, this new work really reflects uh, both that continuing interest, but also um, fairly substantial involvement with the world of uh, uh, state and national think tanks in the last uh, 10 years. Um, I work for a group called the Iowa Policy Project, um, and uh, through that work and through that national uh, network of state policy groups, uh, became more and more interested in uh, historical explanations that really start from the present and work backwards and try and explain our current condition. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I see. So this is really uh, academic research with a kind of, is it fair to say a political edge? Is that fair? Um, yeah, I think that. Okay. I think that was all right. Fair. Yeah. All right. Good. Uh, um, that's that's fine. So, how, how did you come to write this book or create this website, and how did you do it? Um, well, the um, I mean, the the background, the elements of the argument, uh, I've been working on for years, and much of it has appeared in. Uh, in blog posts and short reports. I do a sort of regular economics blog at Descent Magazine. Um, and it, you know, it came out of a, a really a, a strong interest in what used to be called sort of popular economics and the ability to explain, you know, relatively complicated economic phenomena to people who aren't economists. Um, and that led to a lot of experiment with uh, data visualization and graphing. Um, and eventually I landed on a sort of combination of uh, video versions of graphs that is a sort of narrated graph that would explain the metrics and, and uh, the underlying logic uh, in this sort of short three or four minute uh, clump and uh, interactive graphs which uh, allow users to uh, choose their metrics, choose their time frame, uh, you know, sort of compare and contrast and see change over time. Mm-hmm. 
And that segues nicely into my next question. Why this particular format? You could have obviously taken this material and published a book with the University Press, but you chose not to do that. You've answered the question in part, but perhaps you could expand a little bit on it. What advantage is there of these things? I mean, I think the key thing here is, you know, if you're interested in writing, as as I am, a a sort of historical account that explains the present, um, the present is a moving target. And if I had published this with a university press, it would have a shelf life of about eight months. Um, and, you know, and then it would be, you know, all the graphs would say 2011 and it would be 2014. You know, there are a number of extremely smart books on the history of American inequality, uh, or not the history, but sort of patterns. Uh, Paul Pearson and Jacob Hacker's Winner Take All, uh, Timothy Noah's The Great Divergence. Um, these are, you know, really sort of remarkable pieces of scholarship. The shame of, of them, or the, the, the tragedy is that, you know, who's going to buy a copy now? Mm-hmm. Uh, because the data is two or three years old. Right, right. So the, the nice thing about this format is, you know, it's, it's basically a living document. I can go in um, and uh, edit the, the data in the background of the interactive charts. So, you know, my chart on inequality trends that runs currently to 2012, you know, in November when the uh, uh, Census Bureau releases its income information, I'll go in and I'll add another year of data to that. Um, And so it'll be constantly updated. Um, I can also go in, of course, and and tweak the text that's surrounding those charts to to reflect those updates. And just as importantly, um, you know, this has a sort of spare... Uh, framework of references or, you know, what we'd normally call footnotes, I can go in and add uh, new scholarship um, and new uh, uh, perspectives uh, as, as they arise. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So one um, question I think a lot of people, especially academics who listen to this podcast, will want to know is uh, how is the book and how is the book being evaluated? Because, you know, I mean, as again, many of the listeners know, usually with the university press, they send them out to be what is called vetted that is, people write letters about the books, and then you're supposed to change things in accordance with what the uh, recommenders or the vetters say. Did you mm-hmm. do any of that with this book? Um, not really. There's no conventional peer review here. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, the, the ongoing work that, uh, that this developed from, um, you know, was bounced off a lot of colleagues. And... Uh, there was, uh, you know, some editorial intervention from my publisher, which is a Washington think tank called the Institute for Policy Studies. Mm-hmm. Other than that, there's no conventional peer review. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I fully recognize the fact that I'm a point in my career as a tenured full professor that, that doesn't really matter. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but, no, that's right. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, I don't need this on my, on my CV. Mm-hmm. Um, but maybe you'll I'm, be maybe you'll be promoted to full full professor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I mean, my primary interest in having is, is was in making this uh, useful to to readers, to my students, to myself um, on an ongoing basis. And mm-hmm. the, so the format in which you can uh, keep it updated, both in terms of the underlying data and the scholarship seem to make the most sense. Mm-hmm. Now, you used a particular software platform to make the book. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think it's really uh, it's a sort of combination of platforms. The first, first and foremost, the uh, framework and the text is um, on an open source, uh, open access uh, software called Scalar, which is mm-hmm. 
uh, developed out of the University of Southern California, um, specifically for sort of born digital long form scholarship. And, uh, you know, a few people have been playing with this. This is one of the first full length books uh, published on the platform. And it, uh, it really facilitates um, not only, you know, you know, one can think of it just as a sort of WordPress site, that it's just a place to type in the stuff mm-hmm. um, and make it accessible. But it has a very sort of smart, uh, you know, plumbing in the background that allows you to set uh, paths that the readers can go down. Um, you know, so it's a, it's a fairly sort of... Uh, complex and interwoven table of contents. You can start in a certain place and go mm-hmm. down a path and end up in a place that you, know, you might not expect. Um, and then in the background, or you know, at, at, at the top level, there's what I would characterize as a very conventional table of contents of chapters and subchapters and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the nice things about composing it, um, and this would apply to any sort of web-based thing, but it's particularly easy on, on, on this site, is that much of the... Uh, the the detail and the sort of background examples can be relegated to what I call here sidebars. And so mm-hmm. the, the core argument is very lean. Uh, you know, so each chapter, you know, only involves uh, scrolling down a couple of screens. Uh, but one can jump off to the side and see, you know, a little more detail on, you know, the changes in the income tax during the 1940s or the definition of key concepts mm-hmm. or, um, you know, what we used to call a discursive footnote that might go a little bit further into a, uh, you know, a, dis- a fundamental disagreement among economists on how we interpret this one point. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I see. So, um, first and foremost, there's Scalar, which I think is this really wonderfully promising platform. Um, it's uh, very clean, very easy to use. Uh, you know, I think, I think quite attractive in its sort of minimalist sense. And on top of providing, you know, simply what amounts to a piece of paper to type stuff into. Um, it's it's uh, in a very smart way uh, made it possible to incorporate all different kinds of media. Mm-hmm. So, and this includes things from you know Creative Commons, Internet Archive, YouTube, uh, Vimeo. Um, it pro- will provide direct links to that sort of content and just put them in line with the text. And again, this is a, a remarkable way to do it because, of course, you can go in and edit that content in the background on the websites in which they host, and then your book automatically is updated. Mm-hmm. And what I make extensive use of for the graphical is an open access product called Tableau, which allows you to, to um, link basic sort of Excel-based, spreadsheet-based data to a... Um, an interactive graphing platform, and then you know set up various ways in which you can um, describe these trends and, and allow uh, the browsers or the readers to to make choices about which trends they're looking at or which ones they want to compare to one another. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, one final question, uh, and then we'll move on to the message and sure. leave the media aside. One of the things I've always been concerned about with these born digital projects is how they're going to be archived and whether they will be. Um, uh, captured by libraries. Is there, do you know anything about what librarians are doing with things like this? Uh, no. I do know that Scalar is developing agreements with university presses. Um, they have ongoing agreements with five now, I think. Mm-hmm. Although, you know, talking to the people at Scalar, they're not sure what those agreements mean. Mm-hmm. Um, 
I mean, I will say on this and, and other projects, university presses are really not that interested. Yeah. Um, you know, they're, they're, they're basically, you know, you're going to, you're telling us about an innovation that allows us to give stuff away. <laughs> um, so, you know, I, I think some of the, the, the use of this platform will come, uh, when people do, uh, will do material that's ancillary to a regular book. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and I think, you know, that's, that's certainly uh, an interesting way to go about it. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, in this case, what, you know, what's sort of funny about this product is one of the, one of the most common comments I've gotten over the last week is where can I get a printed version? Mm-hmm. So I think we may actually <laughs> go the other way and, and produce a small uh, dumbed down PDF. Yeah that captures the highlights, which is, I guess, you know, the opposite of what the the publisher's approach would be. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, you know, uh, we have to serve many different constituencies, and some people don't like to read things on screens, and that's fine with me. It's not hard to get a book like that printed, print on demand, so, uh, and you can get it on Amazon and everything, so, and make it findable. Um, So, as I said, enough with uh, Medium, now to the message. This book is about inequality, and um, before we uh, start debating... Um, let's get the facts down. And we're talking about uh, uh, really two kinds of inequality, and I think it's important to distinguish between them, or at least two kinds. Um, one is inequality of income, and the other is inequality of wealth. Uh, let's start by defining those. What are they? Well, I, I mean, I'd actually say three kinds. Okay, go ahead. Three. Uh, You're the boss. I mean, you know, I'd start with the inequality of wages and earnings. Okay. Um, and that is obviously attached to an individual, uh, their ability to... Um, you know, and 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 that and that individual's paycheck, and you know the shape of that uh, earnings distribution is is affected by things like uh, the levels of unionization, the minimum wage, other regulations of labor standards, um, all the sorts of things that would affect you know the paycheck. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then when we move, the, the more common measure of, of inequality, however, is income, mm-hmm. um, and that's when you move from an individual to a household or or a taxable unit. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there we're combining people into families. Um, and, you know, as a measure of inequality, it takes into account somewhat uh, the changes in uh, the, the sort of demographic changes and the labor force participation changes that have occurred over the last 50 years. Mm-hmm. So it's now, you know, much, uh, it's, it's now routine for women to work. 50 years ago, it wasn't. Mm-hmm. Um, and so their income is part of, of, uh, of family income. Mm-hmm. And then the third measure uh, you know, which is, uh, which is wealth, uh, includes, is, is basically sort of accumulated income, including inherited income. Mm-hmm. Um, and there, of course, uh, and not surprisingly, the, the picture is much starker. Um, uh, and the, you know, the lower, uh, fifths of the population, uh, you know, claim shares of national wealth, which aren't really even visible on a graph. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, I see. So then uh, th- those are the three terms we'll be dealing with. What are the trends? Uh, let's begin with the very first one, wages, and then we'll go to uh, income of households and things like that, and then we'll go to wealth. What are the trends which you observe in the uh, statistics? Well, on um, wages and income, uh, are the trend is, is relatively similar. What you basically have is you have a sort of U-shaped graph that runs across the 20th century that's sort of beginning in, you know, 19... 1913 to 2013, um, in which inequality is high at the beginning. Uh, it begins to drop off in response to uh, particularly the innovations of the New Deal. 
bottoms out through the 1940s and 1950s, and then as the New Deal is dismantled, uh, begins rising again. And you can see this in the trajectory of uh, wages from the Fair Labor Standards Act, whose 75th anniversary is today, by the way, um, to the present. Um, you can see it in the trajectory of incomes as recorded on tax returns, the sort of famous Piketty and Thayer's data that, um, that shows the trend of the, uh, of the 1%. Um, and, you know, importantly, as a sort of backdrop to this, you have to recognize that over that period, particularly in the entire post-World War II period, uh, the economy has grown at a relatively steady and healthy clip. So recessions aside, productivity uh, has increased, um, you know, in, since the mid-1970s, productivity has almost doubled. It's increased like 87% or something like that. Uh, and wages have not moved, mm-hmm. median wages over that time. Mm-hmm. So then let's move on. So then the, the general picture is increasing uh, inequality here of wages and income. Is that right? Yeah, and I would say that that occurs in two sort of historical periods, um, beginning in the early 1970s uh, and running through into the 1990s. We see real losses at, uh, at the bottom. Mm-hmm. Um, really driven by declining value of the minimum wage, uh, declining presence of unions in the workforce. Uh, basically, as workers lose bargaining power, they lose their share of wages and of national income. Mm-hmm. So just to be clear, then, people in that lower, let's call it a quartile, I don't know the exact percentage, they are actually earning in adjusted wages and income less than they were. Yes. 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 A number of uh, usually... Ago. Usually what economists use is we use quintiles because mm-hmm. then we can have a median uh-huh. and yeah. then uh, the, the shares on either side of that. Mm-hmm. And so for that first period from the mid-70s through the late 1980s, uh, most of the losses are uh, at that bottom end. Mm-hmm. That in some respects sort of settled out. And in fact, wages uh, since then have been, have been flat but not shown a lot of losses. Mm-hmm. Um, and for a brief period during the late 1990s, we actually saw some wage gains. Mm-hmm. But the, the current, uh, the story of the last 20 years is really about the top 1% or the top 5% mm-hmm. pulling away from everybody else. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and so one way you can think about it is to say that, you know, there's an inequality gap between those at the 90th percentile and those at the 10th percentile, between the rich and the poor. Mm-hmm. That much is obvious. The growth in that inequality was mostly between the poor and the median in the early period and between the median and the rich in the latter period. I see. Okay. So we have the emergence of a group of people that are earning a lot more than middle class and I guess lower yes. middle class or lower class earners. Yes. Yeah. Claiming uh, virtually all of the gains in productivity, productivity. in the economy. Yeah, I see. Yeah. I see. Um, so then let's move on to wealth. Uh, I guess I would assume, given everything I know, that you would see similar disparities or changes in disparities of wealth. Yeah, I mean, the wealth picture is, in, in some respects, I mean, it's both starker and simpler. Um, I mean, it's starker in the sense that, you know, what you're really seeing is sort of encrusted uh, income gains over a long period of time. So one of the most uh, striking elements of that um, is the uh, really remarkable gap between black and white wealth. Um, you still see reflected, in other words, the inability of African Americans shut out of conventional housing markets in the, you know, boom years of the 50s and 1960s to establish that intergenerational wealth. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, the, and so, 
you know, the wealth gap is, is uh, much more dramatic. It has uh, a dramatic racial dimension to it. And um, it uh, was really shaped in fundamental ways by the last business cycle. So the wealthy lost a lot of money in 2007, 2008. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, but they got it all back. Mm-hmm. And the rest mm-hmm. of us didn't. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think I understand the general picture. Let me talk about uh, what uh, a couple of a major, I guess I would call them really almost world historical events, what impact they had on these three things. Um, one is the entry of women into the workforce. How did that affect these things? Well, I mean, if you don't mind, I'd like to sort of take a step backward and talk oh, about sure. yeah. kind of explanation. Okay. Because I would say that in, um, you know, both conventional, uh, you know, learned discourse, but also even in much of the economics profession, uh, the dominant explanation here are these kind of sort of global explanations. What do we have? We have increased trade over this period. We have, um, you know, the sort of uh, flat world uh, driven by a combination of trade and, tech and technological change, and we have dramatic demographic changes. Mm-hmm. And this is what you call the usual suspects. Yeah, yes. and I, I label these the usual suspects mm-hmm. because completely neutrally, of course. And my core argument there is, yes, all of these things make a big difference. All of these things change patterns in the ways people uh, are paid, in the way they earn money as families, in the way they accumulate wealth. But these occur uh, across national settings across, you know, the United States, Western Europe, all its industrialized peers in very similar fashion. Mm -hmm. And yet the picture of inequality in the United States is starkly different from those other settings. Mm -hmm. So if, for example, the rise in single motherhood was going to explain income inequality, Mm -hmm. one would expect those countries in which single motherhood rises dramatically to be more unequal. And in fact, you know, the countries in which single motherhood rises most dramatically over the last uh, 30 years, over the last generation, are the United States and Sweden, mm-hmm. which are at opposite poles in terms of this, our usual inequality metrics. Mm-hmm. You can also say the same thing about trade. I mean, obviously, uh, globalization, uh, you know, particularly for the way it's hollowed out manufacturing in this country, has fundamentally shaped our economy. But the fact remains, you know, exports and imports as a share of the economy are much smaller in the U.S. than they are in, in most of Western Europe. Mm-hmm. I mean, the OEC, the, uh, the uh, European Union had a far greater impact on, you know, the mobility of goods and the tenuousness of labor in Western Europe than NAFTA did in North America. Um, so all, you know, all of these are, I think, important important drivers of economic change, Mm -hmm. but they're not very useful as explanations as to why inequality is so much worse now than it was 30 years ago and is so much worse in the U.S. than it is everywhere else. Mm -hmm. And so? So then I think you have to turn to what I sort of characterize in in the meat of the book as the differences that matter. Uh, and those are the, ba- the the sort of public policy interventions or absence of them um, that I think have made a real difference. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, um, you know, an erosion of labor policy that has allowed private sector unionism to go from a third to 6% of the labor force, uh, you know, an inability to, uh, to index or raise the minimum wage, which has 
left, let the floor of the economy sink uh, steadily over the last 30 years. Um, a macroeconomic uh, policy, which is always privileged, uh, fighting inflation over uh, fighting unemployment. Um, all of these sort of redound to the detriment of working Americans and their families. Mm-hmm. And, and on most of these, we do see substantial differences between the United States and its peers. And mm-hmm. I think it's those differences uh, that explain the different trajectories of inequality. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, I think one of the starkest differences is that you show this in a few scatter plots where you put countries on the scatter plots. And it seems to me that the countries that have uh, welfare states have much lower Gini coefficients. That is to say they have much less inequality. And the countries that don't have strong welfare states, um, that would be the United States, and to some extent the UK, uh, have much larger uh, Gini coefficients. That is, they have much more inequality. And so in yeah. a sense, what, what you're saying is, is that it is... Um, I don't exactly know how to put this, but these were political decisions. Right. I mean, I, I think that that is the, the often the, the sort of classic way it's put. And you look at because when you look at incomes, you can look at af- incomes after tax, the effect of taxes and transfers. Mm-hmm. And you say, well, what difference does public policy make? But I think, you know, that's it's only about half of the story, because if you, if you dig down into the numbers, what's important to recognize is that inequality in the U.S. is uh, – you know, the U.S. Is, is an inequality outlier before the welfare state gets its bite at the apple. Mm-hmm. And so inequality is generated, I argue, um, in paychecks. Mm-hmm. And, you know, then there's, there's an unwillingness or an inability of the state to make up much of the difference to, um, to, to bring down poverty. Mm-hmm. You know, so as a general rule, I mean, this varies across years, but as a general rule, you can say that everybody in the OECD, the Organization of Economic Cooperation and Development, which is, you know, the way we usually think of our peers, um, ends up with about, you know, 10 to 15 percent of its population in poverty uh, as a result of market forces. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, actually, let me say 15 to 20 percent. Then the question is, what happens after taxes and transfers? And what you see in the rest of the OECD is that's brought down under 10 percent. Mm-hmm. But in the U.S., it goes from like. 18% to 15%, mm-hmm. very little. Um, you know, and part of that is because uh, you know, the the welfare state is uh, is meager, and part of that is because so much of our uh, tax and transfer actually goes to people who, you know, in inequality terms, don't really need it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, it's famously our, you know, the single largest, um, you know, subsidy provided by the federal government is the mortgage interest deduction. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, the you know the single largest uh, income transfer program is uh, Social Security, which is not means tested, mm-hmm. uh, and you know which is not to say that uh, you know I disagree with all with the government program that uh, for retirement security, but just we need to recognize that uh, we're not really talking about uh, a program of of substantial redistribution. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I see what you mean. I mean one thing that I came to realize in Europe only after being there for a while is that the United States really doesn't have a, a welfare system at all, at least in the sense of the one they have in the UK or France or someplace else. If you're out of a job and you don't have unemployment insurance, you get nothing. Whereas in Europe, that's not true. You can go on the dole. We don't even have that. Um, I'm not saying that's good or bad, but just to put it in perspective. 
Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I mean, we do have a system of unemployment insurance, but when you yeah. compare it to its peers, yeah, it's not. you know, it's harder to get onto it. It's easier to mm-hmm. get kicked off, mm-hmm. and the return rate, the share of earnings, mm-hmm. are much smaller. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's true. So, I don't know if it's. I'm, I'm not quite sure where to go with the interview at this point because it seems to me that the facts, as you lay them out, are established, and almost everyone accepts them. Is there anyone that doesn't accept the facts as you've? Lay them out. Are there people saying, no, the statistics are all wrong. Gordon, he's uh, smoking something. Um, yeah, I mean, I think there are, there are healthy debates around these issues. I mean, there's when people first started to worry about the, uh, the sort of collapse of the post-war compact and the sharp rise in, in inequality in the late 70s, early 1980s, the focus then was often on... Um, technological change, the challenge that posed to the labor market, and the inadequacy of, it, of American education. And that's a, still a very strong argument. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a strong argument, I think, because it's attractive to the left and the right. Mm-hmm. I mean, you can, you can use it as a way to beat up public teachers and public schools and say, we're doing it all wrong. You can use it as an argument to put more resources uh, into education. But ultimately, I don't think it's a very good explanation, particularly for more recent trends. Mm-hmm. In fact, if you look at the wages by educational level in the U.S., the, the advantage of having a college education is starting to dissipate. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But historically, the returns to education have increased tremendously over the past, I don't know, what is it, 30 or 40 years. Is that correct? Um, the, return, the returns to education have, uh, yeah, over the last... 40 years, but not over the last 10. Oh, I see. They've stalled. Okay. Yeah. Uh-huh. yeah, I see. Yeah, yeah. I see. Uh-huh. That's right. So, um, and, and the, you know, the other thing is, if by any objective measure, which is how many years its citizens spend in school, the United States is far more educated than any of its peers, mm-hmm. you know, and yet we haven't, it doesn't solve the inequality problem. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, one can obviously move from there to argue about the quality of American education, um, which is a whole different ball of wax. But I don't think, uh, on the face of it, that 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 the this simple idea that the economy is changing dramatically and we need to, we just need to train uh, our citizens to uh, to get jobs there, um, really flies. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, uh, I think many people will want to know an answer to this question: Is it true that, um, in somehow in absolute terms, that the poor are poorer than they were? Fill in the blank. Is there any point? It's, can we say the poor are poorer today than they were ten years ago, or twenty, or thirty, or forty, or fifty? Um, well, I mean, the problem is that uh, you know both your numerator and your denominator are fairly elastic. Mm-hmm. I mean, what does it mean to be poor? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we, the, the war on poverty uh, the, that dramatically expanded our welfare programs in the 1960s, basically brought the U.S. overall poverty rate from the 20% range to the 12% range. Mm-hmm. And it's been there ever since. Mm-hmm. Um, Is it measured any differently than it was? Um, so one, one, I guess there's, there's, one, no. there's one interesting quote, and that is, people who have flat screen TVs are not poor. And you know what? A lot of people have flat screen TVs. Yeah, so they... Um, I mean, let me go back to the first part of your question. Okay. So the, the, it's important to recognize that the poverty rate uh, is a very uh, only, only minimally useful measure. The poverty rate 
the poverty threshold was a sort of back of the envelope calculation done by um, you know somebody at the at the Bureau of Labor Statistics in the 1960s, trying to think, you know, what would it, what's the, uh, what does it take to get by? What do you need in terms of mm-hmm. wages? And they they basically just use a simple formula that the Department of Agriculture was using at the time, assuming that people would spend about a third of their income on housing and about a third on food. Mm-hmm. So first and foremost, the poverty rate doesn't count the cost of health care, the cost of child care, you know, a whole host of the cost of transportation, a whole host of things that, that weren't really uh, major issues in 1964 when it was established. Right. So no one pretends that it's a very useful measure mm-hmm. of what it means to be poor. Mm-hmm. The other thing, which, you know, as you suggested with your sort of flat screen comment, is that, you know, poverty in some respects is relative. Um, that is, uh, you know, I think it's fair to say that the overall standard of living now is much higher than it was in the 1930s. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's much more routine for people to own things, you know, like automobiles and smartphones uh, and that sort of thing. But even but even allowing for that, inequality, which is a sort of relative measure mm-hmm. from the top to the bottom, is widening dramatically. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, and one can say, well, you know, you're not poor if you have a smartphone. But, you know, we live in a society where, you know, most people need a cell phone mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, as, as a form of communication, as a way to, you know, contact your employer, uh, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, there is a fair amount of research into this question um, by looking not at income inequality, but what's called consumption inequality, um, which, me- which measures you know, what people are able to buy rather than what they're able to earn. Um, because you know, the price of goods like computers and flat screen TVs and have, have come down dramatically. Mm-hmm. Um, and the general trend is that consumption inequality is not quite as severe and that captures the, you know, some of the poor can have a cell phone and a flat screen TV, mm-hmm. but that it's widening at about the same rate. Mm-hmm. 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 Yeah, I certainly take your point about measures of poverty being relative to um, other more general measures, and I think that's only appropriate. Of course, they should be in any society that is progressing. That's exactly what we would expect. You know, I think 50, 60, 80 years ago, people did not expect uh, health care to be part of the general goods package, and today they do, and they should. Right. I, I can't, I can't imagine even a conservative saying anything different. We do not want people dying in the streets. Maybe eighty years ago, some people, you know, I don't know, they did die in the streets, but not anymore, and we can't allow that. So, yeah, I mean, that's a good point. And I, and I, you know, and I think you, the, you know, the argument about, you know, the relative position of people, it has to be set against the backdrop of overall productivity. Yes, absolutely, that's absolutely right. Um, so while agreeing with that, I guess a question that I have, and I think a conservative would have, is that is um, why do we care about this? What harm does it do if all boats are rising? And it's true that the boats uh, in the top 5% are rising a lot faster than the boats in the bottom 5%. Why are we worried about that? What harm does it do any of us? Well, uh, I mean, it's not true that all boats are rising. Um, you know, some are tied pretty firmly to the dock and are mostly underwater. Uh, and that's certainly true. Well, let's, take the, let's take the long term, though. Let's, let's start with 1930, then. Then all boats have risen, right? Um, yeah, I mean, all boats uh, rose together from, mm-hmm. you know, the mid-1930s into the mid-1970s. Mm-hmm. And then half of the boats stopped rising <laughs> yeah. and the rest 
Uh, I'm getting seasick here. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. Well, the, the, okay. The, you know, you, to unpack the question, mm-hmm. I think you first have to ask, because this is often the way it's put in conservative circles, um, whether, in fact, some inequality is good. Mm-hmm. Um, because there certainly is an argument that, uh, you know, we don't want to be Sweden. We don't want uh, the sort of leveling social policies that destroy innovation and entrepreneurship and uh, that sort of thing. ABBA. We don't want ABBA. Yeah. yeah. Now, this, this, is, uh, this is, I think, a very easy argument to puncture. Mm-hmm. Um, because, in fact, alongside the dramatic increase in inequality over the last generation, we've seen a, really an absolute collapse by any measure of mobility in the United States. Mm-hmm. So if, in fact, you were a sustaining economy in which good ideas and hard work would allow you to, to move up, then one would expect those mobility measures, even as inequality widened, um, to stay about the same. But the fact is, it's harder now for a poor person to move out of the poor quintiles. And it's easier now for a rich person or the son of a rich person or the daughter of a rich person to stay there mm-hmm. than at any time in the last century. Mm-hmm. Is that true? Yeah, that's interesting. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I don't think you can say that, you know, what we're, um, what we're safeguarding is, you know, the ability of job creators to be creative, which is the way it's mm-hmm. often. Mm-hmm. Um, so the, you know, and then I think you can move from that to talk about, you know, the real damage that widening inequality does. Mm-hmm. Um, and part of that, and this has, you know, been recognized by uh, some, you know, business and corporate interests, but not others, is how it sort of eviscerates consumer demand. I mean, our recession, 2007, 2009, was a crisis of consumer demand. Mm-hmm. People didn't have money, you know, to buy houses or to buy anything else. And, you know, it's long been recognized since... Uh, really the 1930s, that this is an economy in which, um, you know, wage, uh, in which uh, increased demand induced by wage and income growth um, is what wags the tail. Mm-hmm. And so obviously, um, you know, as you, as you hollow out the middle and you, re, you know, you reduce the buying power at the bottom end, uh, that causes real problems. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, it also, I think, you know, it's been widely documented, and there's a, uh, you know, a wonderful uh, uh, British book on this, came out a couple of years ago, called The Spirit Level, uh, which documents all of the sort of less tangible impact of widening inequality, uh, the way in which it hurts public health, the way in which it hurts um, uh, mobility, the way in which it hurts uh, family stability, and that sort of thing. Um, these are a little harder to measure, but uh, just as obvious in societies uh, like the U.S. and the U.K., which are are seeing spikes in inequality by any measure. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, and then you know, I think the final piece of that is you know you have to recognize the fact that it hurts us, hurts our democracy. Mm-hmm. Um, that you know it really um, exaggerates the sort of background. Uh, propensity to allow uh, money to determine political outcomes. Mm-hmm. And there's been a range of research, not only on the ability of people with money to influence elections, uh, but on you know the the ability and willingness and different perspectives of people with money uh, to shape public policy on a, on a sort of ongoing basis. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, th- those are those are 
you know, they're at least plausible. I would put it that way um, to me. <laughs> but let's, let's talk about each of them in turn just a little bit, because I think you've done a wonderful job in the book, and it's fantastically graphically presented. I don't see how anybody can doubt what you have said uh, sort of um, empirically. Um, the, the first uh, argument about the allocation of, uh, of resources and capital from consumers to people who invest uh, that, that does seem somewhat persuasive. But on the other hand, I think that m- many conservatives would simply say, well, capital should be in the hands of people who know what to do with it and not the government. So the government shouldn't be distributing money to poor people. Uh, it should be actually leaving it in the hands of people who know what to do with it, and they'll allocate the capital, and that will create jobs and increase um, consumer activity. No? Well, <laughs> I mean, we're a long way from removed from what's good for General Motors is good for the customer. <laughs> I don't know if that was ever true. <laughs> Um, well, I mean, I think in an, in an era in which people had lifetime career employment in a firm which provided uh, retirement security, uh, health security, uh, a wage sufficient to, you know, buy a home in the neighborhood, that that was somewhat true. Um, you know, granted, it wasn't, uh, you know, GM's largesse largely driving that. It was, it was the political system in which they were nested. Mm-hmm. They're expected to do certain things. Um, but I think it's it's become increasingly difficult and in some respects ludicrous to make the case that uh, capital, you know, investors, job creators, whatever you want to call them, um, contribute in that in the same way to the sort of general interest and general prosperity. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, this was famously true as we emerged from the recession when uh, profits corporate profits uh, hit levels they had not seen since the 1920s, you know, and hired. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and, and part of that is because now that the financial sector controls, uh, uh, is, accounts for twice as much of the economy as it did a generation ago, there are, you know, speculative outlets for capital mm-hmm. uh, that don't involve creating jobs. It's true, and some of them are absolutely ludicrous, and they're just betting. <laughs> I can tell you because I'm a kind of a student of it. Some yeah. of them are just betting. <laughs> yeah, and you know, and this is Derivative. you know, this has everything to do with the the sort of uh, you know the sort of opportunity, the sort of incentives there are to make money. Yeah, you know, it's much more of a sort of casino economy yeah. um, in which you know hiring a bunch of people stateside isn't is become the last response. Yeah, yeah. Well, let me ask this. How do we find the balance? Then we're still on question number one. How do we find the balance between social welfare? Sure, we want to redistribute some of this because it will increase consumer demand and therefore redound to the benefit of the economy and the desire to make sure that capital is in the hands of people that know what to do with it. I mean, is there a formula or do we, you know, I guess what you're saying is that we're we're sort of too far in one direction. We have to shift a little bit to the other. I mean, you know, there is a formula, and it's called 1955. <laughs> um, Please explain. <laughs> well, the, I mean, one, one of the things that, uh, you know, one of the reasons for me why the, the sort of business arguments about getting, you know, getting rid of the New Deal and, you know, uh, reducing the minimum wage and re- reintroducing child labor and, you know, all of the atrocities that we see on a daily basis, particularly in state legislatures, um, what what punctures all of that for me is the fact that during the heyday of growth in this country and broadly shared prosperity, we had 
a much more elaborate system of financial regulation. We had a much higher marginal tax rate on top incomes. We had a much more robust welfare state. And we had a labor movement that, that uh, claimed a third of the private sector. Right. But I think someone would respond to that. We didn't have China on our heels. We didn't have Germany on our heels. We didn't have Japan on our heels. We just destroyed both of their economies. I mean, there was really only one cowboy in town. Yeah, that's that's certainly part of it. Um, but one, you know, one has to remember that uh, the 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 new deal, the the dismantling of the New Deal, which began, you know, really in the early 1970s, began in response to competition from who? Germany and Japan, Japan countries yeah. with much more robust. Mm-hmm. you know, social welfare and labor systems mm-hmm. than we had even at the time. Mm-hmm. So I don't, you know, I think it's, it's uh, disingenuous for business interests to say, oh, you know, we, do, we live in a, you know, this, this sort of wide open cowboy world and uh, corporations know no national boundaries. Mm-hmm. Um, it's simply not true. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, globalization has made a difference, but a large amount of capital is rooted in place. Mm-hmm. It, you know, it depends upon local consumers and local workers. Um, you know, one of the ironies of this argument is that over the same period that we've supposedly, you know, suddenly gone from a world of nation states to a flat world uh, in which, you know, money flows around uh, without regard to national borders, we've also gone from an economy in the United States, which is mostly goods producing to mostly service producing. Mm-hmm. Well, services are not traded in the same way goods are mm-hmm. internationally. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're not uh, as mobile. Mm-hmm. Somebody's got to make the bed. Right. In. Somebody's got to make the bed. Somebody's <laughs> got to, you know, work at Target. Um, yeah. So, you know, uh, you know, if, if in fact the, you know, the absolute sort of nightmare scenario about competing with the third world were true, you know, we would have chronic unemployment in mm-hmm. the 20% range. Mm-hmm. But we don't. Yeah. Um, and we have substantial capacity in this economy, uh, given you know patterns of consumption and patterns of wealth and patterns of income and patterns of growth, uh, to have the same, much the same kind of distribution of wages and incomes that we had a generation ago. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I see what you mean. Okay, so let's move on to the second of your points about the uh, harmful effects of inequality in the United States, and that was it had to do with the kind of intangible factors. I would sort of lump them all into a kind of um, it does a kind of spiritual harm. It's it's yeah. bad. It's bad for us. We, we it makes us feel bad. And I think someone would respond to that. And again, I haven't looked at the statistics in a long time, but I did a number of years ago. And that is that Americans don't seem to care very much about income inequality. It's not in their top, you know, ten problems. They look at rich people and they say they're rich, and they look at poor people and say they're poor. And they don't see a problem. I mean, is that, has that changed? Have Americans all of a sudden said, you know what, this is really, really horrible. It's unfair. It's, it's, uh, it's unjust. And we have to do something about it. Um, yeah, it has changed. Um, it's, uh, I mean, and, you know, like a lot of these sorts of measures, it really depends how you ask the question. I mean, I think you are right uh, in the sense that if you, if you give a, somebody an open-ended response and asks them what worries them, that income inequality might not be in the top three. You know, they might talk about gun control and abortion and, mm-hmm. you know, unemployment or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but by the same token, if you ask people about patterns of 
wage, income, and wealth inequality. You ask them to describe what they think that distribution looks like in the U.S. and what they think it should be. Mm -hmm. They overwhelmingly argue for uh, a more equitable distribution of resources. Mm -hmm. I mean, the classic example here is a work done by a uh, Harvard psychologist, you know, who gave people just sort of pie charts showing the distribution of income in the United States, in Sweden, and in a you know mythical country called perfect equality. And so everyone looked at the one where every slice of the, of the pie was equal and said, well, that's not going to happen. <laughs> you know, that's obviously some you know, academic creation. But choosing between Sweden and the United States, 92% of Americans chose Sweden mm-hmm. as the way in which they thought wealth should be distributed. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, it's also true you know, from the same uh, body of research that Americans dramatically undermast underestimate how unequal things are. Yeah, this part of your book, this is fascinating, actually. Go ahead about that. Well, the, um, I mean, particularly on wealth inequality, but also on income inequality, I mean, I think there's a general sense that, you know, most working Americans are sort of treading water and some people around them are getting rich. But I don't think people understand, you know, how dramatically that uh, picture pivoted in the 1970s. That is, it used to be everyone was getting rich or richer, uh, and that's no longer the case. And, you know, it's also true if you ask people what they think the distribution is, they pick something that's, you know, that looks much more like Sweden than it does like the United States. Uh, they don't understand, you know, that the uh, top 10% control about 80% of wealth and the bottom 10% control, you know, less than 0% of wealth because, mm-hmm. they're, um, you know, their debt exceeds their assets. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well... Um, yes, I see, I see just what you mean. And it is remarkable that Americans don't, um, realize the extent of inequality. Right. And I, and I think the other, the other thing is, you know, inequality, uh, is a pretty, um, large and abstract concept for most people, you know, and as we started out this conversation, it can mean different things from wages of income and wealth. But I think if you parcel it out and you ask people questions about things like what should the minimum wage be, you know, what should unemployment benefits be? How long should these, these, these sort of policy levers that shape inequality, then, you know, the answer to your question, do Americans care, is pretty clear. Mm-hmm. Because they think policy should be this way when it's not. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, again, some conservative might say, well, if you look at the American tradition, and that is values that Americans hold very dear, they also believe in a, in a, in a much stronger notion of individual freedom and liberty than places like, let's say, Germany or France. That is that the government can tax you, that's legitimate, but not very much. And the government can determine what you're going to pay your, way, your, your employees, but they really shouldn't be intrusive about it. And basically everybody makes their own way, and that's sort of the way we do things. You know, it's a, it reminds me a little bit of Tocqueville, but um, these values haven't changed. Could you ask Americans those questions? I think you ask Americans those questions and, you know, liberty above all. Um. You know, again, I, I, I think the, the question in the abstract is close to meaningless, right? Do you believe in freedom? Do you believe in liberty? The, the, you know, the rubber hits the road when you started asking them, what would you do in these circumstances? Mm-hmm. And I think people pretty consistently argue that this, say Social Security or this, the minimum wage, is an appropriate intervention. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if what follows from that is, I mean, I think the polling on whether or not we should have a minimum wage is pretty decisive. 
you know, yeah, 80, no, 85% yeah, yeah, so we should have yeah. one. Mm-hmm. You know, then the breakdown is where, where should it be? Yeah. But again, I think a lot of it has to do with how you ask the question. And if you ask it in a kind of uh, fully articulated way, I think you'd get a very different response. And the, the fully articulated way is, do you want the federal government to take part of your wages and give it to people um, whom you don't know for purposes of uh, general welfare? I think a lot of Americans would just say, no, I don't want that. I don't want the federal government taking any more money than they already take from me. Whereas if you simply say, do you think the minimum wage should be this? Or do you think that um, social welfare program should be up to this level? I think they'll say yes, because you're not asking them this more. I think it's a more fundamental question for Americans. And that is, where's the money come from? Is it my money? How's yeah, it but I, I mean, I think that's, that's, you know, an example of the sort of perennial problem in which, you know, um, everyone wants the, you know, the public goods or the public services. <laughs> no one wants to pay for it. That's why they're called public. Right? <laughs> yeah. I know well, I do. Um, you know, I, and I don't. I'm not sure that you'd get a substantially different answer in Canada or Sweden. Yeah, I think you're right. Yeah. Um, you know, I'd like a road without potholes. I'd like clean water, um, and I'd like not to pay any taxes. Mm-hmm. Can I do that? Mm-hmm. No, you really can't. You really yeah, can't you really do can't. That. No, that's not. No, no, you can't do that. That's that's not true. And you know, there there's a very interesting book by. Um, uh, Suzanne Mettler, her, her most recent book, and I'm trying to remember the name of it. Uh, it's called something like The Invisible State. Um, and it's, you know, based on a combination of sort of polling research and other research, where basically she documents fairly meticulously the degree to which Americans, you know, at all income thresholds, revol- rely fundamentally on government programs. But also the degree to which in the United States we manage to disguise the fact that these are public goods or public mm-hmm. programs. So, you know, the most famous example is Social Security. People don't think of it as a government program Mm -hmm. because of the way it's paid for. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, go back to the sort of height of the uh, protest against Obamacare and the people carrying around signs saying, get the government hands off my Medicare. Mm -hmm. Um, Or, you know, something like the mortgage interest deduction. We have these substantial public interventions which are invisible because of the way in which we choose to pay for them. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. No, I think that's a... That's a good point. Another thing that occurs to me here, um, it doesn't appear in your book, but it seems to me there's a pretty strong correlation in this. Uh, well, I don't even know. It seems to me that uh, Americans are more religious than most folks, and religious people are concerned with things, uh, non-worldly things. And so uh, when you come and ask them about things like this, there are other considerations you do not find in Sweden. So, uh, you know, they, they have an additional set of preferences, and I think that matters in America. You know, I, 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 yeah, let, me, I mean, let me put it in the most general way. I think most Americans who are religious know there is no redemption here on earth. The rich are going to pay and the poor are going to pay. Everybody gets judged. And so it don't really matter. Are you, are you trying to reassure me? No. <laughs> I know where you're going, Colin. I'm not going to say where. Well, the, <laughs> I mean, I think there are two parts to, to that. I mean, one of, one of which is... Um, you know, I think you're right exactly as you phrased it, that, that uh, uh, certainly there are other elements that I don't touch on here, and, you know, religion is a major one, that shape people's view of the world, um, you know, and where the rewards really lie. But I think, you know, I'd also like to sort of stick a pin in, you know, another favorite book of mine, which is Thomas Frank's What's the Trouble with Kansas? Mm-hmm. Being from Kansas, uh, you know, I didn't like that book at all, but go ahead. Where, you know, and where he makes the, the case that, 
you know, people are being mobilized politically on the basis of these non-economic issues mm-hmm. on, uh, you know, abortion and gay marriage and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but those who are doing the mobilizing then turn around and act on the economic issues mm-hmm. against the, the best interests of, um, you know, of those who are voting Republican because they think they're going to get rid of Roe v. Well, against the economic interests of. Against their own economic yes, interests. Yes, that's right. right. But, right. you know, the fundamental misunderstanding there, being from Kansas and Frank is too, is that those things matter to those people more than money. And, you know, that, that just has to be understood. Abortion matters to those people more than money. Like right. all of it but does. The, the point, and I, and I take Frank's principal point to be not the motives of the voters. Mm-hmm. But the motives of the politicians yeah. that are mobilizing them, yeah. um, who are in fact, you know, quite cynical about things like mm-hmm. abortion, yeah. which is not really a fight they want to win. No, <laughs> they can't mobilize people <laughs> right. they can't win it anyway. Yeah, that's right. So anyway, let's move on to the third of those issues, and that is that inequality is bad for democracy. Um, there was a, there's actually an election going on in Northampton where I sit today. An election. It's going to override. Believe it or not, it's going to override a um, a state law which says that you cannot raise the property tax more than a certain amount every year. I think the people of Northampton are going to override that and tax themselves. So mm-hmm. There you go. I voted for that, I'll tell you, um, because they were going to fire some school teachers. Don't like that very much. And then we have a congressional election going on today. Uh, nobody bought my vote. I didn't. They weren't handing out dollar bills for my vote anywhere. So I don't, I mean, I, I guess it, it's, you know, you hear this a lot that somehow you can buy elections and stuff like that, but I don't know how it happens. I just think it's, uh, you know, it's not as crass as buying votes. Uh, you know, it's a matter of, of uh, the way in which um, the parties frame their positions, uh, the way in which uh, the parties compete and candidates compete within parties, uh, and the way in which that is uh, shaped so fundamentally in the U.S. by you know, even pre-Citizens United, by the, the presence of money in the system. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is the reason why, you know, in the United States, you have two parties which don't really stand for anything but election, you know, on, in, on a historical basis. Um, and you have this sort of infamous hole in the American electorate. You don't have what amounts to, you know, a social Democrat uh, labor party and never have. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that has a lot to do with the way in which American elections are uh, are framed and the way in which they're decided. Mm-hmm. And, you know, this this only gets worse as the background inequality gets worse. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so I, you know, personally, I think it's sort of uh, obscene uh, the way in which, you know, Sheldon Adelson and uh, Karl Rove supporters uh, were able to pump money into the last election. Now, granted, they lost. But I think in their absence, you know, they would have lost spectacularly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the fact that they were able to make it a close election is, is I think, frightening. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know. I always wondered about the connection between money and politics in the United States. People talk about it a lot, and especially in terms of lobbying. You know, these lobbyists go and try to affect votes. I, you know, it's just always been something that's a little bit uh, opaque to me because I don't know anybody that doesn't vote their conscience. I, I just don't know anybody who says, I, well, that's not true. I take that back. I do know some people that will vote their pocketbook, um, and they tend to be state employees. <laughs> to be honest with you, they're people who work for the state government, or they work for a university that's funded by the state government, or they work for the Fed. Right, and they'll but vote see, I, think, I think most of the most of the damage that's wrought by money in politics 
is done before you, anyone gets to the voters' booth. Oh, you think so? Uh-huh. Yeah, that, and it has to do with, yeah. with who the candidates are, uh-huh. what the issues are, you know, what the range of acceptable political debate is. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, you know, and less to do with um, the way in which money might shape, you know, who votes on any given election. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, a, 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 so I, we've answered those questions, and I think we've, we've – uh, I, I certainly understand your position. Much of it is very persuasive. One of the things – we talked a little bit about Marxism in the pre-interview. One of the things that occurs to me is there was this old Marxist notion of false consciousness. Do you remember that one? Yeah. Yeah, false yeah. consciousness. So it seems to me that somebody could read your book and say, you know what uh, Colin Gordon is saying is the Americans have kind of a false consciousness. They, they think that things are going really well, but they actually aren't. Would you associate yourself with that at all? They, in other words, they, they believe in a kind of – mythical world where they can all do well and uh, get to the top of the heap. And, and, and this supports the entire unfair system. Um, yeah, I don't think I really agree with that. <laughs> I mean, you know, I think what I've described in the book um, is, you know, it, it's relatively well known. I mean, this, you know, this is a synthetic piece of scholarship. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it draws on, you know, a wide array of uh, data sources and other scholarship and tries to make them, you know, digestible. But I think the basic storyline is, is relatively well known. Mm-hmm. I think one of the ways actually people can visualize your argument is to, especially people of some years, let's say, um, if they look at cars, um, when I was growing up, I think that the difference between an expensive car and a cheap car was, let's say, X. If you walk around today, it's now X times 10. I mean, I was walking in and I saw a car that I know cost $150,000, you know, and I can go buy a car for, you know, like 15,000 bucks. And so, you know, you can actually see it in the, in the, I, I look at these cars. I like to look at cars and mm-hmm. I see these cars and I know how much they cost. And I see this, like what I think of as ordinary middle-class people driving these cars that cost $80,000. Middle-class people don't drive $80,000 cars, <laughs> but, they're and, all, you know, but they're everywhere. <laughs> I mean, my, my point of reference is not, you know, ideal on that sort of thing, because I grew up in a small town in uh, Canada, and I've lived in, you know, university towns most of my life where, um, you know, the, these sorts of, the larger distributions are not really uh, present. But, you know, I think that is people, most people's experience. They look around and they say, well, where the hell did they get the money? Yeah, really. I, I've seen um, that. Yeah, I mean, I've seen it in my own life. Yeah, I, I do. But it's it's funny because Americans are somewhat reserved. They don't. They're not usually very ostentatious about their wealth. You know, the classic thing for an American, a very rich American, to say is when you walk into their palatial home, is that we're comfortable. Yeah. <laughs> That's all they say. We're comfortable. You know, and and they're not just. You know, we don't have servants generally, and we're just not very ostentatious about about wealth. Um, but it's you know, it is a peculiar thing. I do. I do. I do take take your point. There's something in American culture that is very confused about this issue, and I'm kind of glad of it just to lay my cards on the table, because I know there's a Russian proverb that says, you know, what do you do when um, your neighbor has a cow and you don't? You kill the cow. (laughs) I'm glad Americans don't feel that way. You know, I really am. Uh, I think that it actually helps us a lot that we're not really that concerned about the neighbor having a cow. Um, But there should be more cows. I think we can all agree on that. So let me ask this final question. I know we've almost run over time, but uh, let's say, for instance, for example, some you know that a substantial number of Americans agree, agree with what you say that this is a problem. It's a growing problem. What, what should we do about it? Uh, well, there's a number of things. I mean, first and foremost, I think uh, you have to return to um, those policies that sustained uh, bargaining power for ordinary workers. 
Um, and, it, and, you know, I think this is particularly attractive policy intervention because it avoids the sort of welfare state argument about um, redistributing income after the fact. You need to make the market do a better job. Mm-hmm. Um, that means a higher minimum wage, uh, you know, making it easier for workers to organize, um, uh, serious uh, uh, protections uh, against uh, forms of wage theft. Mm-hmm. Um, and other sort of, you know, abuses of labor standards like, uh, you know, the widespread use of unpaid interns and that sort of thing. <laughs> um, yeah. You know, you've got to build a much more serious floor under the economy that gives workers some basic bargaining power and some uh, stained recognition of their rights as workers. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, that will, that will take you a long way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and then I think uh, you move to the top and you look for ways to sort of change the way uh, change the incentive structure for incomes at the very top. Uh, one very simple intervention would be a financial transactions tax, uh, which would raise a lot of money and it would dampen the sort of speculative enthusiasm uh, that uh, creates things like the housing bubble. Mm-hmm. And so all economists, even conservative economists, generally agree that the finance sector is about as twice as big as it needs to be um, you know, after all, you know, an, an efficient finance sector is a small finance sector yeah. because it provides the intermediary services for the rest of the economy. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, it's it's gone in the opposite direction of things like, you know, Walmart or Microsoft and providing more and more efficient products to more and more people. Right. Um, it's, in fact, you know, and, and it's, uh, you know, that not only... Um, you know, creates the bubble and widens inequality, but you know, it's it uh, it's drawing off talent from other sectors of the economy because mm-hmm. bright young people think, "Well, I'm going to go into finance and get rich before I'm 30." Right. You know, instead of uh, doing something that will actually uh, uh, create wealth and general prosperity. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, the the um, the bottom line research on the tax side is that we have substantial room to raise tax rights without creating any disincentives to investment. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, on the order of, you know, so our top marginal rate is 39% now. You know, I think we could go to 60 mm-hmm. without, uh, you know, um, ca- causing a ripple in the way in patterns of investment in the economy. Mm-hmm. There's just a lot of room there. Mm-hmm. And of course, you know, once you do that, a combination of something like financial transactions and a little more on the income and corporate income side, then you have the resources to do a lot of other things. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, sustain uh, better unemployment system, you know, beef up the um, the options available under uh, Obamacare, take a little bit of heat off the states, uh, and just all the way down the line. Okay, so do you think any of that will happen? No. I mean, all of that involves big government. I mean, there's more, more government is the only way you're going to get there as far as I can see. Well, I mean, it depends what you mean by, by more government. I mean, I think people look differently at a set of baseline standards for things like wages and workers' rights than they do at redistribution after the fact. Mm-hmm. Um, and think, I think people look differently at a set of policies which make work pay, like the earned income tax credit yeah. and higher minimum wage, mm-hmm. than they do at, at policies which, which seem to reward uh, non-workers definitely. after the fact. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I think right? that's absolutely and, true. And so, you know, I don't necessarily agree with that point of view, but... Let's go with it, and yeah. let's and let's make substantial move on the sort of wage market end, so that people who work hard are rewarded for working hard, so that their kids can afford to go to school, and so that all members of their family have health insurance. Mm-hmm. 
No, I think that's right. That would be a big change. Yeah, I don't know. I'm of a number of years, and I um, talk to my students and kids I know who are working for $10 an hour, and I'm like, what do they have to complain of? Because when I started working, the minimum wage was two sixty five. <laughs> remember that, two sixty five? You probably don't remember that. It would be in Canadian, I, I guess. With that, you. Yeah, two sixty five. That was what my, my for two sixty five. That's back in the day. Um, so, yeah, no, it's, it's all very interesting. Well, let me, let me thank you very much for uh, writing the book, if that's what it is. It's a terrific piece of work. I think it should cause a tremendous amount of discussion. These are issues that we absolutely have to think about. So you made a great contribution in that way. But before we close the interview, let me ask our traditional final question. And that is, what are you working on now? Is it a book in smoke signals or something? I just kind of be interested in it. Well, uh, I mean, one thing I'm working on now is, is this, you know, it's a living book. And yeah, so, right. you know, I find myself going back into it on a weekly basis at least, and saying, um, because, you know, there's new data release, right. there's a uh, new piece of scholarship, and so I think, um, you know, a, a chunk of my time will be taken up mm-hmm. doing that. Um, uh, I, I have another project, uh, which I'm also developing on, on uh, Scala, or on the, uh, the fate of uh, two old African-American communities outside St. Louis, mm-hmm. um, you know, which allows you to do different kinds of things on, yeah. on the platforms, or animated mm-hmm. maps, and, mm-hmm photographs and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, sort of ongoing uh, work um, very much in the vein uh, of this book. But, you know, what I try and do is, is sort of report on and put in historical perspective uh, data when it comes out mm-hmm. uh, in my regular blog of dissent. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. Uh, well, uh, Thank you very much, Colin. Today we've been talking to Colin Gordon, who's the author of Growing Apart, A Political History of American Inequality. You can find it on the Internet. You probably know what the Internet is. I think the best way to find things these days, I think you'll agree with me, is not through URLs, but in fact, by going to Google or something like Google and typing in Growing Apart and Gordon, G-O-R-D-O-N. And I do note that it is the first return. So if you type any number of words, you'll get it and then go look at it. And I think you'll be fascinated by what you find, and it will um, stimulate, hopefully, a lot of thought. So I want to thank everybody for listening into this podcast. We'll be back next week with something different. But especially, I want to thank Colin Gordon for being with us today. Thanks, Colin. Thanks, Marshall. All right. Bye-bye.